Well, morning, everybody. Um, yeah, just uh, some people get the emails and the updates, but just to let you know a little bit of what's going on. And um, Dave, who normally leads worship here, so he's had a, they've had a little bit of a, a season. So a few weeks ago, um, his wife, Sarah, who quite often is through with the kiddos, um, was trying to get something out the garage. She fell down the steps and she broke both feet. Um, and so he has been playing caretaker for the last couple of weeks to her because she's not been able to do very much. And then in the middle of that space, uh, this, or at the beginning of the week, his dad was out on his motorcycle and hit a deer. Um, broke eight ribs on one side, shattered his shoulder, his spleen was bleeding, and is currently in a medically induced coma with fluid in his lungs, which he can't get out because he can't cough because his ribs are too sore. Um, And so Dave had to fly out uh, over to Minnesota to be with his mom and dad. In that situation, Sarah's parents have had to come to care for her in the middle of that situation. So that's why Dave is not leading uh, this morning. Um, so just as we get started, I just want to pray for Dave and Sarah and, um, and his dad and just this crazy circumstance they're in. So if you just want to join me, um, just think about Dave and Sarah and think about his dad and, and let me pray. God, uh, thank you, first of all, for Dave and Sarah and Bryce and Chloe and the gift that they are to our church. Thank you uh, for what you're doing in them and through them. But God, we want to see your hand moving in their life in this situation. They need uh, uh, an awareness of your presence. We pray for Sarah, for your healing to be on her feet, uh, that you would bring life back to her feet, that she'd function well. We pray for just a great season of grace and and patience as our parents are in town. We pray for Dave over with his dad. We pray for his healing. Um, Lord, that you would remove the fluid from his lungs, that you would uh, pour your life and health back into his body. Uh, We pray you'd preserve his life, that you'd use him for your kingdom. And then Dave, as he is in Minnesota, navigating things with his mom and dad, worrying about his wife back at home, uh, would your spirit be on him? And in the moments of anxiety, may he find your peace. In the moments of worry, may he find your hope. In moments of fear, may he encounter your peace. And would you use him as an agent to bring powerful change in all of those situations. So we as his church come alongside him and Sarah and ask for your blessing and protection to rest on them and on their family in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, we are in a series um, called Arise where we are starting to articulate some of the vision that we are walking in as a church. So uh, we've decided to name our discipleship process here, Arise. And so through this series, what we're trying to do is articulate the values that we are holding as a church that are going to be the things that dictate how we function moving forward. And at the same time, we're trying to describe what does discipleship look like here and what what needs to be in place in order for us to become holistic disciples of Jesus who are operating out into the world. Um, And so you have some little booklets on your table um, that say Arise on the front, and these contain a summary um, of where we're going over this series. And so we invite you to take those away, to reflect on them, to pray over them. We'd love to hear your feedback. Where do you resonate with what's there? Where do questions come up? Um, And we're going to do some things coming up where we're going to gather together and and dream a little bit within each of these areas. What are the things that we want to see God doing? So this is an invitation to start dreaming 
dreaming and thinking about what are some of the things in each of these areas that you might want God to see do in our church and through our church and out into the world. Um, so the way we're tackling this series is we're, we're looking at uh, where we're going as a church through three elements. First of all, our principles, which we looked at last week. Uh, the principles are to be true to Christ, to be kind to people, and to be sent into the world. And these are taken from the great the greatest commandments and the great commission and summarized. So our mission as a church is to honor him and serve him wholeheartedly, to be kind to the people that he's placed around us and then to move out into the world in a way that serves him. So there's our, our principles. Before we move on to the next slide, we're gonna look today at our posture and then over the common weeks, we're gonna look at six practices that are tied to each of these principles um, that help us live them out and flesh them out um, as, as we live out our Christian walk as individuals and as the church. Um, so this week, what we're going to look at is what we're calling our posture. Um, and this is the posture in which we engage those three principles. So how do we be true to Christ? How do we kind to people? How do we be, uh, I put the wrong one up there, not bold mission, sent to the world? Um, that was iteration 1.0. <laughs> so you're, you're seeing the working documents and process. But um, yeah, so, so what are the things that we need to do to do this? How do we engage the principles? Um, and this is taken, I mean, those of you who have walked with Jesus that know the word, you know that these words, grace and truth, are taken directly from the life of Christ and a description of his posture and the tension that he held as he walked in the world. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean uh, to live as a church who, who uh, sits in the tension between grace and truth as we minister in the world. So to do that, we're gonna jump back to the beginning of John's gospel to such a beautiful piece of scripture. Um, John's gospel obviously is unique in the New Testament and the perspective that it brings. It's much more theological uh, than Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, which were written way more bi biographically. But this is a very theological and very rich book um, that portrays this aspect of Jesus, who he was and what he did in just such a beautiful way. So we're going to start in John chapter 1, uh, verse 1. We're going to skip uh, little parts in here, and when you see, uh, for those of you who are purists and want us to hit every verse as we go, just so you understand, when the verses skip, most of why it's skipping is it's in, in John chapter 1, we're seeing some story about Jesus interspersed with some testimony about John the Baptist. So I'm kind of skipping the John the Baptist parts because I just want to look at Jesus, so that's why we're skipping some in here. Um, so this is John Chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that's been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So a couple of things that I, I want to point out here. Um, some statements about Jesus. So when, when John is writing and he's talking about the Word, um, you've got to understand that he's bringing two concepts together that we don't always realize when we're reading this content. So first of all, you've got the Jewish thought process, which all centered around the law of God, like teaches your law, let us hear your words, the prophetic uh, people that were speaking God's word into the community, the kings whose job it was to meditate on the law day and night so that God's word could come to bear. And so one element of the concept of of the word is, uh, is the Jewish thought that's all wrapped up in 
God speaking at the beginning, giving the law, and the requirement of the Israel, Israeli people to live according to the law. So that's part one. And um, part two, which is, is the wording that is being used in the Greek, is this concept of logos, which came from, from Greek philosophy. And they believed there was this overarching principle of reason and logic that governed all of creation. Um, and so when, when uh, John begins by describing Jesus, in the beginning was the word, the Jewish people are like, okay, I get this because that word has been there and we've been following it for all this time. Uh, the people that came from Greek philosophy are going, oh, the word, this logos that we've been following and, and, and giving credence to, um, he's, he's redefining what this is. So he's taken the Greek and, the, and the, the Jewish thought process and he's bringing them together. So in the beginning was the word, and it's this holistic thing that covers all of mankind. So, so there's three things in this first sentence that I think are important to see because John is masterful in his writing. In the beginning was the word. So that first statement, the word was eternal. So in the beginning, before everything came into being, was the Word. So just as God is eternal, the Word is eternal. That's where he launches. The Word was with God. So this is something that is distinct from God. It's not God in itself, but it's distinct. It was with him. But then he goes on to say the Word was God. So in this opening statement, he says the Word is eternal. It's distinct from God, and it is God. See how cleverly in one verse, John is opening up the reality of the Trinitarian God that we serve. He was with God in the beginning. He's the creator. Through him, all things were made, and there's nothing that has been made on the earth uh, without him. He, he's behind it all. So, so he's eternal. He's distinct from God. He's with God. He's the creator God. He's setting up this Jesus character. In him was life. We're back in Genesis 1. You see it in the creative narrative. He's making things. Here he's bringing life. He was life. Just as in the beginning God creates Adam and Eve and he breathes life into their being, saying this person is life, was life. And that light, that, that, that life was the light of mankind. And so he's opening up in this, this part of the Bible, these contrasts that John uses all through, uh, the contrast between the light and the darkness, the contrast between life and death, and the relationship between those two. Um, when you are walking in the light, you experience life. When you're walking in the darkness, you experience death. So in five verses, John is like setting up this litany of theological concepts that help us understand who this word is that we're supposed to be celebrating. I think that's pretty awesome. The last verse, just as a little side note, based on pre-service prayer, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We could reword this, light wins, right? So right at the beginning, as we're about to see, remember what John's setting up, it's the story of the, the Son of God, the Messiah, being crucified, but light wins. So in the middle of the darkness, the light is, is going to win. So let's keep going. Hey. This is jumping on to 1 verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of His fullness, we have all received grace in place of the grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. So this amazing statement, so he set up this, the Word existed, it was eternal, it was distinct from God, it was God, and then this climactic moment that we know so well, the Word becomes flesh. This theological concept, this God that couldn't be seen or understood, takes on human flesh and comes into the world. And, and, and John is playing, he's having fun with the words here. When it says he comes and made his dwelling among us, the word for dwelling is the word tabernacle. He tabernacles among us. And then he's going to, so, so you go, what's the tabernacle? It's the thing that God gave Moses in the wilderness so that the people of Israel could have this face-to-face -face encounter with God. So out of grace, God calls the people of Israel to himself. Out of grace, he gives them the tent of meeting to encounter him. Out of grace, he bestows on them the law so that these sinful people can deal with their sins so that they can be in right relationship with this God in a temporary way at this point in in, in the story, um, but that's a work of grace, um, that all of those things were given. So, so here, he's, he's making his dwelling, he's tabernacling, just like with Moses, God tabernacled in a way that was mediated by the law. So in Jesus, we tabernacle with him in a way that's mediated by his grace and truth. So, so that's why he says, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son, glory language, all around the tabernacle and the temple. It was all about the glory of God being manifested. So he's drawn this parallel between the law and the tabernacle and the glory there and Jesus inhabiting uh, the human flesh and the glory that comes through there. So we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Out of that fullness, we receive grace in place of the grace already given. So he's saying the grace that comes through Jesus is better than and supersedes the grace that was given in the law and through Moses. And then he explains it. For the law was given through Moses. That was a form of grace that was temporary and couldn't deal with sin permanently. But grace and truth comes through Jesus. And then why this passage is so important, this last statement, no one has ever seen God the law gives us an understanding of what he's like, um, but quite often, this side of, the, of, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we look back and we see bad Old Testament God, really nice, kind New Testament God, right? It's the way we see it. That God was really mean and judgmental and vindictive, and this God is really, really nice. We say, no one has seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and in close relationship with the Father, he is making him known. So everything, again, this is 101, everything we know about Jesus is revealing to us what that Old Testament God truly is. And what is that? Full of grace and truth. So you've got this fantastic thing that's happening uh, with, with the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So Old Testament, you've got the tabernacle and the temple. What was that? It was the place where heaven and earth intersected. Um, and so when you went to the temple, God's presence was there, and it was a little glimmer of the kingdom of heaven present on the earth. So as long as you were out there in the world, you're looking at all the brokenness and encountering the kingdom of darkness, but you could go to the temple and you could enter that room where heaven and earth came together. When Jesus comes and the word becomes flesh in his body as he walks on the earth, as Jesus walked around the, 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 the earth, his body was the place where heaven and earth intersected. 
So no longer was God like, like it was just in the temple we had to go find him. It was in the person of Jesus where heaven and earth came together in his body and everywhere he went, he brought that intersection between heaven and earth. And it's why we see him do such amazing, miraculous things because he was tapped into the power of heaven as he walks around on the earth. So he holds this tension between heaven and earth together. I want to uh, show these two tensions that exist in this passage in the person of Jesus that we've got to wrestle with as we think about who we are as the church and how we function in the world. So the first one is that tension between heaven and earth that we see in the person of Jesus. We can jump on to the next slide. Um, heaven and earth that we see in the person of Jesus. So he is uh, heaven, he's fully God. Earth, he's fully man. And Jesus holds those tensions together. He's living as a citizen of heaven while living on the broken world. You could look at other theological tensions like, the, is, it, is it predestined or is it free will? Well, predestined says God in heaven has it all sorted. Free will says humans on earth are responsible for their choices. So he's holding in tension the heavenly predestination of God with the earthly free will that comes together. These are tensions that exist in the body of Jesus as he walks on the earth. It's a tension that we are called to live in as the church. As the spirit comes and dwells in our fleshly body, as God tabernacles inside of us, we become as individual members of the church and then as the church collectively, we become the intersection between heaven and earth as we walk around the world in ministers. So, so that's the first tension that Jesus carries is this tension between heaven and earth, being fully God, being fully man, the, the sovereign will of God with the free will of humanity. The second tension is this one that we're calling our posture, which is the relationship between grace and truth. So we understand well from the Old Testament the truth side of God with the word. I, I look at this one and I forget you're the other way around. So truth is over here, right? <laughs> the, the truth side of God with the law and the covenants and God speaking and what is required. And we get that well. And in the evangelical side of the world, we understand this part really well. The, the truth, the standard on God's word, his sovereign standards as we walk around in the world. And then we've got to keep that in, in tension with grace. The grace that, that called us to God, the grace that, that, uh, that is merciful and forgives our sin and, and pours out love and generosity on people that Scripture says keeps no record of wrong. So you get these tensions that he's walking in, this God who upholds truth yet is gracious when we break it. Um, the beautiful thing about this is when you put these two things together, this is, my, this is how I picture Jesus in my mind and his life, death, and resurrection. It's the him holding, you can move on to the next slide, him holding in tension heaven and earth and grace and truth. This is, this is how I envision the cross. This is how I envision the life of Christ. This is how I envision when we, as the church, are walking in the world in his manner, holding in tension uh, the reality of what heaven offers us in the middle of the brokenness of the world as we stand firmly on the truth of God, offering grace to the world round about us. So this is the tensions that Jesus held together as the word of God made flesh in the world, and it's the tensions that we're called to live in in the church. And if I'm being honest, I don't think the church does this very well. 
There are some churches that do the, the heaven side very well and they're gathering together and calling the power of God to bear on the world. And there are churches that are out there criticizing the world and seeing all the brokenness. There are churches that are out there speaking truth powerfully. They're teaching the word, they're declaring it. There's churches that are out there that are so gracious to the people and so loving and kind and gentle. Uh, and, and we've lost sight of trying to walk in the tension of both. So um, inside the booklet that's on the table, if, you're, if you open up and you look at the first page, we, we've written in there what we call our posture. And this is what we're going to strive to be as a church in humanity and weakness. We're going to do well at some points. We're going to fail miserably at others. But this is our goal to strive toward. And it begins with this statement. We are committed to being a community of grace and truth. We are committed to being a community of grace and truth. That means we're committed to pursuing all that grace offers to us, and we're committed to communicating all that grace offers to the world, and we're committed to absorbing all the truth that God gives us and communicating that truth to the world. I want to put up um, just a, a, another little same diagram, but just bigger. <laughs> And I want you to think for a minute, the, this, this uh, tension between grace and truth. So you can picture it as two poles. Um, and so the question is, where do you swing? If you had to like go on this line and mark yourself up there as like, what's your predominant way of functioning in the world? Do you sit more on the truth side of the spectrum, speaking truth, advocating for the truth, sitting in scripture? Do you sit more on the grace side of the spectrum, like maybe stay a little more quiet. I don't say hard things to people. I'm kind and I'm, I'm gentle. I think all of us kind of swing one way or another. And, and if we're honest, there's some relationships where we probably swing more on the truth side and other relationships that we swing more on the, the grace side. And so I want you to be thinking about where you are in this because there's some correctives that we need to walk in in our faith. Because if you're all the way over on the truth side of the spectrum, you're gonna to need to do some work to lean into the grace of Jesus in order to hold that tension appropriately. And if you're on the grace side of the spectrum, there's some truth that you're gonna to have to learn to walk in in order to be more like Jesus, walking in grace and truth uh, in the earth. A statement I wanna put up here uh, before we go any further is, is this, grace is the container for truth. I, I think I've said this before in a training I was at recently, someone brought this up. Grace is the container for truth. I think it's interesting in the description of Jesus, it doesn't say he came and was full of truthing, truth and grace. Now, not that that's a, I don't know that John was specifically trying to order them and make one primary over the other, but I think there's some real truth <laughs> as we walk in the world to the fact that grace helps people receive and contain the truth. So we have a job in the world to use grace to help build the container in people's lives that when we pour out the truth, it will be held so that it can work in their life. So grace is the container for truth. So we're going to have to work um, as a church that values truth. We're going to have to work to create the grace environments that enable that truth to be received uh, and heard so that it can transform people's lives. So what's it mean to be a community committed to grace and truth? We're going to do this with all of the values as we walk forward. So first of all, there's going to be a call to us to arise in grace. 
If we're committed to a posture of grace and truth, step one, we have to rise in grace. And what does that look like? I think, again, we have a very, very narrow view of what grace is and what grace means. So I want to look briefly um, at what is grace and what's the fullness of grace in Scripture. So here's six ways. You can go online and, and find 10 ways, six ways, eight ways. You can go to the Bible and probably come up with 20 ways that, that grace works in Scripture. But I want to look at some categories of grace just to remind us of the fullness of what grace actually means. So the first one I've got up here, first category of grace, what we call common grace. And what does that mean? It's the grace that's available to everybody independent of whether they're walking with Jesus or not. So Matthew 5, 45 is the verse that says, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God is at work in the world, pouring out a measure of grace on every person, regardless of where they stand in relationship to Jesus. Why? Because God created and God loves and he delights in what he's made. So one aspect of the grace that we're going to have to learn to walk in as a church is, is understanding the common grace that is shared with all people. Number two is the one that we probably most often default to when we think about grace, and we call it saving grace. And this is the Ephesians verse, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it's the gift from God. So there is a grace that God pours out into our life that enables us to turn from darkness and into light. And when we start talking about what does it mean to, to uh, introduce God's grace to people, this is where we major, right? It's about salvation, the grace that saves you, uh, and, and this is a product of the Reformation. It's not by works, it's by faith alone, and that's where we spend a lot of our time emphasizing. It's an important part of that, um, and, and in our relationship with Jesus as the church, we've got to keep revisiting our own experience with saving grace that rescued us from darkness, from light. But we want to be a church that is actively conveying the saving grace of God to the world. Third one up here, sanctifying grace. Philippians 1.6 um, is the verse that says, you know, for it's God who works in you. And work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God, God works in you uh, to bring you through to completion. And so, so God is working in us. His grace is at work in us, not just to save us, but every day of our life to make us look more like Jesus. And we tend to think about grace saves us and then the Spirit works in us to make us more like Jesus. But it's still a work of grace in us. So many of us, it's like we've embraced the grace that's saved, but we're not fully work, walking in the grace that he's giving us day by day to walk in sanctification. Um, that means both the grace that takes away our brokenness and the grace that empowers us to be able to live the way God wants us to live in the world. Um, I, I, <sighs> Lamentations. Your mercies are new every morning, so great is your faithfulness. So every morning when we wake up, there is a store of mercy and grace available to us. It's new every morning, so great is his faithfulness. The way we tend to look at God's grace is, I want to live my day so that there's the most amount of that left at the end of the day because grace covers over my sin. So the goal becomes, I want to live my day and try and use as little of God's grace and mercy as possible 
because that means I've not sinned very much and I've honored God in the way I live. What it should be is God's grace is new every morning, so I want to live my life so that at the end of the day there's nothing left in that bucket. Why? Because every single action you do, even the good ones, should be done dependent on His grace. As you pick up the Bible to read, you're asking for His grace to reveal the truth. As you sit with your spouse, you're asking for His grace to love. As you're going about your job, you're asking for His grace to help you partner with Him in the work that we're doing in the world. And so we've got this wrong view of how grace functions. Let me make sure I don't tap into this storehouse over here that's, because that makes it look like I've got lots of sin versus every moment of every day should be lived depending on the grace of God that's going to sanctify me and help me to partner with him as we're walking through the world? What view of grace do you operate with uh, as you pursue Jesus? Number four, equipping grace. So first Peter, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So God has given us a special grace that gives us gifts. And what's the purpose of the gift? To steward his grace within the church and out into the world. Um, and so God's grace equips us with gifts, it equips us as a church, and it sends us out. And um, there's the miraculous grace that we long to see. Um, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people, like Acts attributes the, the miraculous movement of God to the work of his grace in the world. And then lastly is persevering grace. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of, throne of grace that we receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need so that God takes grace that enables us to persevere through our brokenness, through the things of the world uh, and move out into the world. So grace is a much bigger concept than we often allow it to be. We restrict it to the forgiveness of sins when actually grace is the thing that empowers all of Christian living. So when it says Jesus comes full of grace, he's filled with all of this. The understanding of common grace, the salvation, sanctification, equipping, miracles, perseverance was at work in him. So we want to resemble that as we walk out into the world. Um, Luke 7 has this uh, beautiful story of the woman uh, anointing Jesus' feet. And Jesus looks at the people around him and he says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered does not stop kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And there's this powerful statement at the end. Jesus understands this woman, uh, the sinful woman that's anointing his, her feet is in contrast to these religious people that think they've got it right. And Jesus is saying this act of grace uh, is a demonstration that she understands the grace that's been given to her, where you're over there judging and being critical, and that's evidence that you don't understand the extent of the grace that's been poured over you. So if we're people who walk in the world, who understand the grace of God at work in our life, who have embraced the fullness of what grace means for us, if we fully grasp the forgiveness that's been offered to us, that means our posture in the world should look more like this woman who's breaking an alabaster jar. Uh, she loves much, 
because she's forgiven much as opposed to people who love little because they've been forgiven little. So you've got to think as you look at people out in the world, as you think about different groups and demographics and issues, is your posture toward those one of love and grace and kindness or is it one of criticism and hard-heartedness? Because it may be evidence if you're in the hard-hearted side, it may be evidence that you're not fully embracing the forgiveness that he's given you. It may be evidence that you've not fully taken stock of the brokenness of your own life and the mercy that's been poured over it. Um, Jesus uses another parable um, where there's a, a steward that owes a lot of debt. He cancels the debt graciously to the man, and then the man goes out to someone that owes him money, and he's like, hey, give me the money that you owe me. So God takes the original guy, throws him in jail, and, and he's like, what are you doing? I forgave your sins. Why are you not forgiving the debts of other people? We don't want to be that kind of person as we're walking in the world. We, we love grace when it's towards us. We're not always good at extending the grace when it's towards other people. We don't want justice when we've done something wrong, but we want justice when it's someone else that's done something wrong. So we've got to balance uh, and hold appropriate tension. Uh, last statement relating to grace is this. Grace demands a response. Um, we have this wrong thought process. Uh, it's not wrong. It's an incomplete thought process. We define grace uh, as an undeserved gift. And so we say, you know, grace is unconditional. God gives it to us, and it's a gift that he gives us out of generosity, expecting nothing in return. Not true. The grace is given to us infinitely and without measure, but there's conditions. Go make disciples of all nations. Love God, love people. Like there's a way that he expects us to live in the world in response to the grace that we've received. We don't, we don't have to do anything to earn the grace, but grace demands a response. And if we're walking in the grace that God has given us, it means there's a certain way we should be walking in the world. And then as we offer grace to the world, we don't say, here's the grace of God, now just stay as you are and don't do anything, right? Here's the grace of God. Grace demands a response. And there's a way that God is gonna call you to live in the world as a response. So if, you go, if you're in your booklet, um, we said we're, we're a church that's committed to grace and truth. Um, this is our description of, of what it means to be committed to grace. We are committed to being people marked by radical grace that overflows from having experienced God's grace at work in our own lives. Compelled by this, we welcome the hurting, broken, marginalized, and needy and lavish upon them the healing love of Jesus. We invite the Spirit of God to grant us an experiential understanding, not just intellect, but experience of His grace that wipes away our sin, empowers us to live Christ-like lives, produces love for others, and gifts us to contribute uniquely to God's mission through the church. This is what it means for us to be a church that's committed to grace. And so I'd encourage you as you're looking at that on your own, hey, are there elements of this that are missing, that are underemphasized in your own life? So if we're a church that's committed to grace and truth, we arise in grace, but then secondly, we have to arise in truth. And what does this mean? Um, in pre-service prayer, Lupe was sharing what was on her heart this morning. She said how important it is to be in the Word, and even more than that, in His presence in the Word. If we want to be people who arise in truth, we have to be saturated in the truth that he wants to speak. So here's six ways that, that scriptures encourage us to engage in truth. I'm not going to 
labor these points. They're, they're fairly straightforward, but first of all, we engage the spirit. We tend to oppose the spirit and put them in contrast to truth, right? There's the truth churches and there's the spirit churches, you know? It, Jesus tells the woman at the well, people are gonna worship me in spirit and truth. Um, but he describes when the advocate comes who I'll send from the Father, he's the spirit of truth. He goes from the Father, he'll testify about me, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So we have to embrace the spirit of truth as he's working in us. We have to seek truth. Verses like Psalm 25, give me, uh, guide me in your truth and teach me. Oh God, my hope is in you all day long. We have to walk in the truth. John 3, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And if we love truth, we're people that walk in the light. What does that mean? It means disclosing what is going on in our life. It means not running and hiddenness from the things that are besetting us. Uh, we've got to speak the truth. Verses like Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. Jesus in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Um, the mandate, uh, go make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. Uh, we have to delight in the truth right in the middle of that beautiful love is patient and kind and it doesn't boast. It rejoices in the truth. We're supposed to be people that delight in his word, that delight in the truth that he brings. And then the command in 2 Timothy 2.15, to correctly handle, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So there's a lot of work that scripture puts on us to seek the truth, to saturate ourselves in the truth, to stand in the truth, to walk in the truth, and then communicate that truth to the world. So when I say, as a church, we need to, people, to be people who arise in truth, again, we tend to have a narrow view of what that looks like. We say arise in truth means I need to know the Bible and I need to speak it. That's part of it. But arising in truth means when you're on Facebook or other social media and someone posts something that is aligned with your ideology and you see it and you think, man, that's really going to hit home for people, that rather than just send share to my feed, you look at the little footnote website and you take the five minutes to jump on the website and verify that the content in that post is true before you click post. Right? That's what it means to walk in truth. A lot of us are guilty of, and I've done this, uh, there's that amazing quote by C.S. Lewis, I should have put this up here, that's really prevalent to the world right now, and everyone was sharing it about pandemics and masks and vaccines and all of this stuff, and then it says C.S. Lewis, and I, one day I, I shared it on my Facebook, and then I was like, that seems too apt for today. I've read Screwtape Letters, so I typed it up, I put it in Google, and it pulled up a whole bunch of stuff. This is not C.S. Lewis. It's not from Screwtape Letters. Someone has taken the mentality of Screwtape Letters and they've changed it to fit today and they've put C.S. Lewis' name on it. And I've seen people share it left, right, and center. I was sharing lies because I didn't take the two minutes to verify the thing that I was sharing was true. 
Um, and it's the same when you're sitting in a room and someone says, oh, I heard that Dave's dad like, got in a car wreck and he's dying. Like he, he crashed in another car and he was drinking. It's like, that, that's not what happened. Just <laughs> but it's like you hear someone say it. It, it can be anything. I heard at this, this event the other day, I heard this was said. Someone read this news article that Kate Brown said, blah, blah, blah. Don't just go on and share those things as if they're truth. If we're going to be people that arise in truth, we have to stop, take two minutes to research that the fact is true before we share it. Because otherwise, we're out there in the world telling people that God's word is true while they're watching us post things on our Facebook that are false. And so now we're people that can't be trusted because we're posting things that are false in the world. So does that, so can they trust that the things that we're posting from the Bible are true? Um, so if we want to be people that walk in truth, we have to verify facts of truth as we share them. Um, it goes beyond this to, you can't, it's not just share the truth that's in the Bible. There are lots of things of truth in the world that complement the Bible, that are supported by the Bible. There's psychological research, there's neurological research, there's sociological research. So our job is to mine these fields for truth. We take that truth, we submit it under Scripture, and so much as it supports what Scripture is saying, we advocate for it as true. Um, but we always submit those things to Scripture. And the last one is probably the hardest one when it comes to walking in the truth is the area of self-disclosure and confession. Because what we do is we say, I'm a person that walks in the truth, but no one in the room knows what's gone on in my life. I'm a person that walks in truth, but no one knows that I sinned yesterday and here's what it looked like. So if we're committed to being people of truth, it's not just that we walk out into the world and share God's word, but that we are willing to self-disclose what's gone on in our life in order to move from darkness and into light, in order to get rid of the power that darkness has when we walk in secrecy, to be able to entrust the truth of our situation with the world around about us, and that's a huge part of testimony. Um, I said grace demands a response, but funny this, truth demands a response. Um, as we go out there and we speak the truth, it demands a response. Some people respond to it and give their life to Jesus. Some people reject it and walk away from it. Isaiah 55, 11 says, the word that, like, goes out from me, it does not return void. It always brings response, whether it's the hardening of the heart or the softening of a heart. So are we going to be a church that arises in truth, not just biblical truth, that's core of it, uh, not just in, as we evangelize in the world, but as we disclose who we are, as we fact check the things that we share, and we become people who let their yes be yes and their no be no, so that the people in our lives know us of people of truth and integrity. So when we open our mouth to share the Bible, they understand that we are people who have researched and studied and verified, and it brings an extra weight to the word as we preach it. Truth demands a response. Here's the description of what it means to be people of truth. We are committed to being people of truth who stand on God's word, both written and revealed. So we have what he's spoken in the word, but we know he's still communicating with us. We, uh, we're, we stand on God's word by studying it, listening to it, living it, teaching it, and submitting everything to it. Uh, we stand on God's word by speaking truth to glorify God, build up the church, resolve conflict, and lovingly confront sin. 
And we stand on God's word by being agents of redemption to the world, preaching the gospel, advocating for the needy, and challenging the cultural lies and systems through the constructive presentation of the kingdom of God. So I want to be a church that walks in the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth and holds those two things in appropriate tension. And that's going to be messy. And sometimes we need more truth to be spoken, and sometimes we need more grace to be offered. But are we going to walk in that tension? So I'll put up that little diagram again of grace and truth. Where are you on that spectrum? I don't want to be a church that's like trying to do 50-50, half grace, half truth. I want to be like Jesus, full of grace and full of truth and hold in both of those and all of their infinite tension as we walk in the world. And everything we're going to do moving forward, we have to ask the question, is this full of grace and truth? As we interact with City View Charter School, are we doing it full of grace and truth? As we're leading groups of people in discipleship, is it full full of grace and truth? As we're dealing with church discipline, are we full of grace and truth as we walk out in the world? So back to our our diagram. Um, This is the posture as we walk in the world. True to Christ, kind to people, bold and uh, sent to the world, (laughs) but with grace and truth as the posture that we walk in. So I invite you to to read and reflect on, uh, on the descriptions in that little booklet and ask yourself, is this true of me? And what needs to change? What do I need to put in place in my life to hold these things in appropriate tension? So with that, I'm going to invite Aaron up to lead us in communion, and then we'll close with some worship songs.